Hello and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Oh, that was good. I liked that a lot. Gotta um, put, put a little English on it every now and then. Gotta put a little, gotta put a little stank on it. Um, I gotta be honest with you. I am a little drunk right now. <laughs> I <laughs> Kel surprise. Am I right? Wow. Wow. Shade right off the bat. I uh, went to my friend Sarah's uh, goodbye party because she's moving out of town. And I am very sad. And her goodbye party, I had two glasses of wine. And apparently two glasses of wine is really all it takes for your your pale LT over here. Um, Again, this is, did not come as a shock <laughs> to any of us. I know. I am not. To no one. It, you, my best friend, and also anyone listening to this podcast. Um, but I mentioned that I was recording with you and mm-hmm. why I had to leave. And I was talking to my friend Catherine and I said, oh, I, my, I told her my topic and she goes, oh my God, I was obsessed with the Phantom of the Opera when I was in elementary school. I was like, oh my God, me too. So then we were talking about it. Like why, why were we like had an unhealthy obsession with Phantom of the Opera and I'll get to it later. But it's because you spent so much time after getting kidnapped and being in a basement. I, I said, it's because we both have dark, a little bit dark hearts and we, and like our, our, our formative years were defined by a love story about a man with a fucked up face who lives in the basement of a Paris opera house. <laughs> And we were like, yeah, that's the man I want. <laughs> I can fix him. I can fix him. I can fix him as he rides his boat through the sewers of Paris, of 1881 Paris. Anyway. And then I married Steve, so um, wish fulfilled. Uh, <laughs> How is his gondola doing? Uh, pretty good. It's in the shop right now. <laughs> but his mask is doing great he got a new one the other day uh we so as you may have guessed my topic we put a little english on it we put a little english on it my uh my topic today is entitled for i compose the music of the night andrew lloyd weber musicals Now your interstitial music absolutely has to be yes. It 100% is. But I promised Steve that he could pick the song for the thinking music for the ah, quiz. Okay. Which he has not told me yet. So we'll see. Um, and we'll get to that. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a brief bio of our good Andy L. Dubs. And then we... No one has ever called him that <laughs> in his entire well, existence. It's the first time for everything, isn't there? Uh, And then we're going to get to the good stuff because his work is what's interesting and not necessarily his life. So first, his honorifics. All right. In 2001, the New York Times referred to him as, quote, the most commercially successful composer in history. Uh, He was ranked the fifth most powerful person in British culture by the Daily Telegraph in 2008. And the lyricist Don Black stated, quote, Andrew more or less single-handedly reinvented the musical. So there you have it. He has received a number of awards, including a knighthood in 1992, followed by a peerage from Queen Elizabeth II for services to music, six Tonys, three Emmys, as well as the Grammy Legend Award, an Academy Award, 14 Ivor Novello Awards, seven Olivier Awards, a Golden Globe, a Brit Award, the 2006 Kennedy Center Honors, the 2008 Classic Brit Award for Outstanding Contribution to Music, and an Emmy Award. Has, is he an EGOT? Oh, he is one of 15 people to have EGOTed. So 
He has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, is an inductee into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and is a fellow of the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors. Uh, His company, called the Really Useful Group, which I will mention probably a couple of times throughout this topic, is one of the largest theater operators in London. He is involved in a number of charitable activities. Why are you laughing at me? What a British... What a British name for a company. The really really useful. The really useful group. Really quite useful. Quite useful. It's making, it literally makes billions of pounds like a day. It's crazy. Um, He is, however, involved in a number of charitable activities, including the Elton John AIDS Foundation, the Prostate Cancer UK, and what's known as War Child. Uh, He had prostate cancer and almost died from it, not because of the cancer part, but because he had a uh, terrible infection afterwards. It's very bad. Very rare. Um, In 1992, he set up the Andrew Lloyd Webber Foundation, which supports the arts, culture, and heritage in the UK. And his memoir, called Unmasked, was published in March of 2018. So if you want to learn more about his personal life, I don't know why you'd want to, uh, you could go see and you could find Unmasked. Andy L. Dubs. Andy L. Dubs. By Andy L. Dubs. Um, He has been married three times. Shock. Uh, (laughs) Once to... (laughs) All right. Okay. What? You know so much more about him at this point than everybody else. Okay. And you just keep alluding to the fact that he is a real dick. Oh, he is. Oh, I should just start off. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber is a huge dick. <laughs> he is a dick. He's a dick amongst dicks. The richest of dicks. Um, and there is, there's evidence to that. But okay. he's been married three times. No surprise there. Once to his muse, Sarah Brightman, who was the original Christine Daae in Phantom of the Opera. He has five children. Uh, the Sunday Times Rich List 2006 ranks him the 87th richest man in Britain with an estimated fortune of 700 million pounds. The Sunday Times Rich List of 2019 saw him ranked the richest musician in the UK, overtaking Paul McCartney Ooh. with a fortune of 820 million pounds, which in US dollars is one point. Zero six billion with a B dollars. So the man is technically a billionaire. Okay. He was born in Kensington, London on March 22nd, 1948. Both of his parents were musicians in their own right. And his younger brother, Julian Lloyd Webber, has had a notable career as a solo cellist. And he has actually written music for his brother to perform specifically. Did he charge him for it? Probably. Uh, <laughs> um, apparently he started writing. Uh, he started originally set, setting music, like writing his own music at a young age. Um, and a suite of six pieces at the age of nine. So he kind of has a little bit oh of boy. a... A little bit of a virtuoso Yeah, a very young child prodigy thing going on. Um, he also had originally set music to Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats at the age of 15. You don't say. Uh, yeah, keep that in mind. Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Yes, by T.S. Eliot. Um, in 1965, when Lloyd Webber was 17 years old, uh, he was a budding musical theater composer. He was introduced to the 20-year-old aspiring pop songwriter, Tim Rice, who would become his uh, songwriting partner for years and years and years. So, his very first, very first, F- his fierce, <laughs> his very first musical is called The Likes of Us. Okay. okay. It was written in 1965. It is his earliest musical that he wrote. However, it was not performed until 2005. Oh. Um, it was also his first musical written with Tim Rice. So okay. this was their first partnership. It is based on the true story of Thomas John Bernardo, who was a philanthropist who founded Homes for Destitute Children. He was a real person. Right? <laughs> I know. So boring. 
Um, it didn't get backing like they couldn't find a, a supporter for it. So that's why it wasn't performed until 2005, well into his like illustrious career. Um, so during Bernardo's lifetime, nearly 60,000 children were rescued and provided with training that prepared them to be self-sufficient. Um, it's basically a story about a rich guy who meets some street urchins and has moved to save them. It's, it seems a little Annie. It's basically Annie, but with maybe some boys involved. I read the, the <laughs> plot and it's not that interesting. So you only get street urchins in England. I think, I think that's they don't it. live anywhere else. No, They're I mean, indigenous they, to England. <laughs> they really have the corner, the market cornered on urchins, you know, like play some, I have some more. So it sounds, it sounds really familiar. I know, like right? A, like a little guy <laughs> named Mervyn Minfield. <laughs> Based on the likes of us. He had a beautiful singing voice. Um, so his next musical was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, that was only his, really his second musical? Yeah, his, his second that? musical. It was the first Lloyd Webber and Rice musical to be performed publicly. Um, the show has only a few lines of spoken dialogue. It is almost entirely sung through. It's, it's technically an opera. Its family-friendly story, familiar themes, and catchy music has resulted in numerous stagings. Uh, Lloyd Webber and Rice humorously pastiched a number of pop music styles, such as Elvis-style rock and roll, calypso, and country music. It sounds like my nightmare. I've never seen it. According to the Really Useful Group, uh, by 2008, more than 20,000 schools and amateur theater groups have staged productions of Technicolor Dream Code. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Joseph was first presented as a 15-minute pop cantata at Coley Court School in London in 1968 and was published by Novello and recorded in an expanded form by Decca Records in 1969. Um, after the success of the next Lloyd uh, Webber and Rice piece, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which is the following musical, Joseph received amateur stage productions in the U.S. beginning in 1970, and the first American release of the album was in 1971. Um, the musical was mounted on Broadway in 1982 and several major revivals, national tours, and a 1999 directed video film starring Donny Osmond follow. I was going to say, where mm. does Donny Osmond fit into yeah. all of this? Donny O is probably the person most Americans associate with the show since he toured for it between 1992 and 1999 all across the U.S. He was Joseph. Just making some, that sweet, sweet oh, that, rainbow cash. Yeah. And um, that's the that's the show that like revived his career from mm-hmm. the Osmonds and like him being like a little bit rock and roll and his sister being a little bit country. So this was the thing that like brought him into like the 20th century in terms of okay. like being a, an adult. So quick, quick, this is what the plot is of the show. The show is guided through by a narrator, unnamed, who sings the story of Joseph, the favorite of the 12 sons of Jacob, who gives him a beautiful multicolored coat. His brothers try to kill him, but is spared by his brother, Ben, who convinces them to just sell him as a slave. Easy peasy. He's sold to the Egyptian tycoon Potiphar and is so good that he soon rises through his household, but is then seduced by Potiphar's wife and then is sent to jail because they think that he had sex with his wife. Um, He interprets some dreams in there and then goes to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh and then is a success. And then he reunites with his family. Bing, bang, boom. Songs, 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 tons of songs. Beautiful coat. In 1969, Rice, (laughs) Rice and Lloyd Webber wrote a song for the Eurovision song contest called try it and see which was not selected for England. But with rewritten lyrics, it became King Herod's song in their third musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, that's interesting. So here's Jesus Christ Superstar, which is 1970. 
Um, it is a rock opera with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Tim Rice. The musical started as a rock opera concept album before its Broadway debut in 1971. It seems like a lot of the more um, famous and uh, successful musicals by Andrew Lloyd Webber um, started out as just like an album. Like he decided to like, I'm going to write some music for an album. And then it becomes a huge musical. It seems kind of backwards to us in these modern times. Now that we're not in the 1900s anymore. Yeah. It seems strange that they were like, oh, we're just going to just release it as an album. And then they kind of built out a storyline around Mm -hmm. it, which is kind of strange. But so again, Jesus Christ Superstar is mostly sung through with little spoken dialogue. The story is loosely based on the gospel's account of the last week of Jesus's life, beginning with the preparation for the arrival of Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem and ending with the crucifixion. It depicts political and interpersonal struggles between Judas Iscariot and Jesus that are not present in the Bible. They took a lot of um, liberties, creative liberties with the story um, and was very controversial at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, The work's depiction offers a free interpretation of the psychology of Jesus and other characters. And much of the plot centers on Judas, who is dissatisfied with the direction in which Jesus is steering his disciples. Um, Contemporary attitudes, sensibilities and slang pervade the rock opera's lyrics. It's very very 70s, very hippie. Um, Ironic allusions to modern life are scattered throughout the depiction of political events. It's very like, you know, Jesus is just like, you know, like, yeah, keep it cool, man. Um, Stage and film productions accordingly contain many intentional anachronisms. A lot of times um, there'll be updated versions of Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ Superstar. Um, It is my husband's favorite musical. He loves Jesus Christ Superstar, loves it, can sing every word. So uh, I told him that he could choose the interstitial music for our thinking. Great. Yeah. Um, that, was a real, that was a real leap of faith. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, famous songs include like, uh, What's the Buzz? Mm-hmm. And I Don't Know How to Love Him, which is Mary Magdalene's song. Every time I look at you, I don't understand. Why you let the things you dig oh, it so out of hand? What? That song is from that. Yes. Yeah. It's it was very big. I mean, uh, a lot of the songs became singles, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was extremely popular. So this was like his first. I mean, um, Joseph was big, but Jesus Christ Superstar was like huge. Mm-hmm. So it opened on Broadway on October twelfth, nineteen seventy one. It was directed by Tom O'Horgan at the Mark Hellinger Theater. It starred Jeff Fenholt as Jesus, Ben Vereen as Judas, ah. and Bob Bingham as Caiaphas. The show closed on June 30th, 1973, after 711 performances. It's pretty good. Um, the production actually received mixed reviews. The bold casting of African-Americans as Judas was lauded, but reviewer Clive Barnes from the New York Times said, the real disappointment was not in the music, but in the conception. The show was nominated for five Tonys, including Best Score, but won none of them. Um, So a film adaptation of the musical was released in 1973 and was the eighth highest grossing film of that year. Okay. Um, It was directed by Norman Jewison, was shot in Israel and other Middle Eastern locations. And on Easter Sunday, April 1st, 2018, NBC aired a live concert version of the show featuring John Legend as Jesus, Sarah Bareilles as Mary Magdalene, Brandon Victor Dixon as Judas, Alice Cooper as King Herod, uh, Norm Lewis as Caiaphas, amongst others. I keep learning, sidebar, I keep learning more about Alice Cooper, like, yeah, organically. Were we talking about (laughs) Alice Cooper the other day? We're like, you know what, Alice Cooper... Was just who was I talking about with Alice? I don't know. He might show up in a 
future episode. Are like, you just, serious? Like, just make a random appearance in an upcoming episode. Is Ellis Cooper, is he running the Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? Because I was talking to somebody about Ellis Cooper. Yes. I was talking to my coworker, Carrie, about Ellis Cooper. And I heard that Ellis Cooper, he loves golf. He's like a cool guy. I dated a guy who lived like down the street from him. And apparently he's just like a sweet man who just loves his family. <laughs> and rock and roll. And, and rock and roll. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. So his next musical was called By Jeeves. It was originally... By Jeeves? By Jeeves. Like, by Jeeves. Um, it was originally just Jeeves. Okay. okay. It is a 1975 musical by Weber and Alan Eckborn, who was the lyricist for that one. That sounds like a pseudonym. I know, right? Is It's Tim Rice. It's him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, Tim Rice again. Um, it was based on the novels of P.G. Wodehouse. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it makes sense. Um, in the uh, Jeeves, just Jeeves, is the original 1975 version, which opened on April 22nd, 1975, and closed on May 24th after 38 performances. Yes. Don't ask him about it. Don't ask him about it. Don't ask Jeeves. <laughs> that was very good. Stepped on my joke. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. That's my fault. I should have I should have looked at your hand. Um, it is regarded as Andrew Lloyd Webber's only real flop. Uh, several critics noted that the authors failed to develop the title character, Jeeves, not even having a solo song. So Aww. it was very weird. Um, by Jeeves is the rewritten 1996 version, which opened on May 1st, 1996 in London and due to success was extended to February 1997 through three theaters. It premiered in the U.S. in 96 and on Broadway in 2001. It's perfectly fine. Um, all right, here we go. Avita, right? Mm-hmm. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Absolutely Do not. not. Um, began as a rock opera concept album released in 1976. Um, so its success led to productions in London's West End in 1978, winning the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Musical, and on Broadway a year later, where it was, first, where it was the first British musical to receive the Tony Award for Best Musical. Yeah. So um, the plot is a somewhat unsympathetic look at Ava Perone's life and her ambitions. It's not flattering to also, Ava Perone. Also, like, she's still alive when this ha- when this came out, right? No, no, she was she had died by okay. the time that Evita came out because the there's like a death scene, and okay. it talk she died of cancer like relatively young. I think okay. she was like in her late forties. Um, so it's narrated much like with Joseph and Jesus Christ by an outsider voice. Um, che, who is, I think, Che Guevara, which is wild. Um, and it begins with Evita's funeral announcement and then recounts her life in a narrated flashback. Um, Rice and Lloyd Webber parted ways soon after Evita. Not, a, not out of any, like, contentiousness or anything, but they both had a lot of work separately. Kay. So they decided to just kind of part creatively. And um, they parted for a long time, actually, hmm. many years. So they only did like four things together? Yeah, they only did like four things together prior to um, the break. Okay. And then they got back together and did some other things okay. later in, I think, in the 90s. Um, so Avita opened at the Prince Edward Theater in the West End on June 21st, 1978 and closed on February 26th, 1986 after 3,176 performances. Um, after debuting in Los Angeles with a subsequent engagement in San Francisco, the Broadway production opened at the Broadway Theater on September 25th, 1979 and closed on June 26th, 1983 after 1,567 performances. 
Patty Lapone started as Eva with uh, Mandy Patinkin as Shay. Uh, Lapone has stated about her time at Navita, quote, here we go. Avita was the worst experience of my life, she said. I was screaming my way through a part that could only have been written by a man who hates women. And I had no support from the producers who wanted a star performance on stage, but treated me as an unknown backstage. It was like Beirut, and I fought like a banshee. She does not give. God bless Patty oh, Lapone. Patty Lapone hates everything and anyone and does not take shit from anybody, and I love the hell out of her. <laughs> she kept going. In an interview in 2011... Lapone commented, quote, he writes crap music. Evita was his best score. Evita in its bizarreness. When I first heard it, I thought, I swear to God, he hated women. There are some very romantic moments in his music, and there is some real trash that he doesn't even think about parting with. He's not a very good editor of his own stuff. <laughs> and, then she could, and then she continued to work with him. Like, this wasn't the first and last time that Patti Lapone worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber, so who knows? Anyway, the song Don't Cry For Me, Argentina became a hit single, along with the song You Must Love Me, written specifically for the 1996 film version starring Madonna um, and Antonio Banderas as Shay. According to Andrew Lloyd Webber, the song's purpose was to showcase Perón's emotional state at the time, as well as her relationship with her husband, Juan Perón. Uh, Madonna, who starred in the title role of the film, had tried to change the lyrics of the track to create a sympathetic portrayal of Perón, but was unsuccessful. She also undertook vocal lessons to record the songs for the film because the part of Evita, the part of Eva Perone in that right. musical is a mezzo-soprano. Okay. And Madonna, and Madonna is, is not. Nothing. Madonna's not a singer. Like, like Madonna's not a good wow. singer. I know. I'm going <laughs> to... Madonna is nothing. <laughs> I really hope people don't isolate that and send it to her. <laughs> she doesn't care about me. She's got more money than anybody. Um, no, she's not like... Madonna has said herself, I didn't get into pop music because I thought I had a great voice. I got into pop music because I had something to say. So she knows she's not like a great voice, but the fact that she, she, and she really like gunned for this part. Mm -hmm. She wrote letters to the director. She like, um, one of her music videos, she did like a whole like Spain thing. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. remember that. Mm-hmm. It was um I don't remember the song. But yeah, she's there's like a bullfighter and she's like dressed up like Ava Perone. That was like all part of her like plan. Did she have to a get... song that was like Spanish lullaby or something? Yeah. Yeah. Was that earlier? No, it, I think it may have been Yeah, that may have been the same like era where she was like, I'm gonna write a song about this <laughs> so I can get a part in Evita. Anyway, the movie did well, apparently. Um okay. So the next musical is called Tell Me on a Sunday. Um, It's a musical with music by our boy and lyrics by uh, a man named Don Black. It's a one-woman show. Uh, It has been performed by a number of female singers, actors, and a one-act song cycle. It tells the story of an ordinary English girl from Muswell Hill who journeys to the United States in search of love. Uh, Her romantic misadventures begin in New York City, lead her to Hollywood, and eventually take her back to Manhattan. The musical is based on an idea originally conceived by Tim Rice, who intended to develop it as a cycle of television shows with songwriting partner Andrew Lloyd Webber. And the two relished working on the small-scale project following Evita. A one-person show. A one-woman show. All about traveling. Yep. And having adventures. Yes. Yep. Yeah, you'll see. Hold on. So uh, shortly after they began working, however, Lloyd Webber realized that Rice was writing specifically for Elaine Page, who was a singer-actor, uh, with whom the married father of two young children was having a blatant affair. Oof. 
Um, Lloyd Webber felt that allowing Paige to appear in the series would suggest that he approved of their relationship, so he decided to look for a new lyricist, and that's why he went with Don Black. So the most notable song from the show is called Take That Look Off Your Face, uh, which I looked up on YouTube afterwards, and it sounds very distinctly late 70s, um, but it became a hit song at the time. So take that look off your face. Tell me on Sunday. Tell me on a Sunday. All right, next one. You ready for this? Everybody buckle in because it's cats. It's cats. So cats. (laughs) Sorry. Cats is a song through musical composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber based on the 1939 poetry book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot. It tells the story of a tribe of cats called the Jellicles and the night that they make the Jellicle choice. (laughs) Deciding which cat will ascend to the heavy side layer and come back to a new life. The musical includes the well-known song Memory, as sung by the character of Grisabella. Uh, the cats have names like Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser, Jenny Annie Dots, and Rum Tum Tugger. Cat people love to name their cats these these names. <laughs> uh, Weber began setting Eliot's poems to music in 1977, and the compositions were first presented as a song cycle in 1980. Uh, producer Cameron McIntosh then recruited director Trevor Nunn and choreographer Gillian Lynn to turn the songs into a complete musical. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber worked a lot with Trevor Nunn and Gillian Lynn in a couple of mm-hmm. upcoming musicals as well. Um, Trevor Nunn initially envisioned Practical Cats as a chamber piece for five actors and two pianos, which he felt would reflect Eliot's charming, slightly offbeat, mildly satiric view of the late 1930s London. So he wanted to make it a little bit more like, okay, these are people, but like, like the 1930s, like a little bit of F. Scott Fitzgerald, but he relented to Lloyd Webber's And then more. he went, you know what? Fine, put the leotard on. Yeah, fine. I don't give a, I don't give a shit. Uh, so apparently Lloyd Webber want, had a more ambitious vision for the musical. So Cats surprisingly opened to positive reviews at the New London Theater in the West End in 1981. And then to mixed reviews at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway in 1982. Apparently the, um, the Americans had less of a tolerance (laughs) so it won numerous awards including best musical at both the Laurence Olivier and Tony Awards and despite its unusual premise which deterred investors initially the musical turned out to be an unprecedented commercial success with a worldwide gross of 3.5 billion dollars by 2012 the London production ran for 21 years and 8,949 performances, while the Broadway production ran for 18 years and 7,485 performances, making Cats the longest-running musical in both theater districts for a number of years. Wow. Uh, as of 2019, it remains the sixth-longest-running West End show and the fourth-longest-running Broadway show. Uh, Cats has since been revived in the West End twice and on Broadway once. It has also been translated into multiple languages and performed around the world many times. Uh, Long-running foreign productions include a 15-year run at the Operettenhaus in Hamburg that played over 6,100 performances, as well as an ongoing run in a purpose-built theater in Japan that has played over 10,000 performances since it opened in 1983. (laughs) Of course! Yes. They love them there. Oh, they love cats in Japan. Oh, my God. Just cats, like the, the, the animal in general. <laughs> so cats started the mega musical phenomenon, establishing Broadway as a global industry and directing its focus to big budget blockbusters, as well as family and tourist friendly shows. 
Uh, its profound but polarizing influence also reshaped the aesthetic technology and marketing of the medium. And the musical was adapted to a direct to video film in 1998 with a feature film adaptation by Tom Hooper set to follow this year in 2019. Ugh, the internet. When the trailer for the 2019 one came oh. out. My God. Everybody got to forget all of the things that they were all fighting about <laughs> and unite we against were, the we trailer were united. for cats. Oh, how bad is that? That's my, bad, right? My initial reaction was this would be a thousand times more palatable if everybody just had a little dark triangle drawn on their nose uh, to make them look like absolutely. they were dressed up like a cat. It was because they look like they have weird uncanny valley cat bodies with fur and a tail coming out of their ass and boobs what and then they have just a human face like slapped on to like realistic ears and shit you know no thank you take some you know what if you didn't have it in the budget for a makeup artist you can hire any college girl off the street that we all knew everyone knows to draw sexy cat cat and whiskers on our cheeks absolutely with an eyeliner that's it takes no time at all. No. They didn't need uh, CGI fur technology, no. as they've been boasting about. Also, that movie costs so much friggin' flangin' money. How did no one, the thousands of people, the cast of thousands that was involved in this process said, um, this looks hey, weird. Tom? <laughs> hey, Tom, this looks Can weird, right? Can we just right? draw a little triangle on everyone's Can we just, nose? in post, could we put like a little triangle just on Just a little nose? triangle. And it would be pretty less terrifying. Yeah. My favorite thing is on the internet, everyone was like, oh, the furries will love this. The furries will love this. And then the furries came out, like they all got on Twitter and they were like, um, please don't put this on us. <laughs> this is, we don't like this no, any more you. than you do. No, thank you. <laughs> no, we like our animals cute looking like animals, not like <laughs> freaks, not like abominations of God and man. Anyway. <laughs> cats my other favorite thing that yeah. involves cats is and you know what it's been out for like a year now so it's not a spoiler anymore yeah um the final season of unbreakable kimmy schmidt oh, yeah. titus is an actor and he like wanders into a theater where cats is being performed and he finds out that cats isn't real it's not real it's just a thing that unemployed actors just <laughs> start doing and then people show up and give them money so they were like there's no book uh, there's no there's like, no lines. There's yeah. <laughs> there's no score. It's true though. Like there's no plot. Every isn't real. The, it's not it couldn't possibly be real because how could this thing that doesn't have it doesn't even have a loose plot. It's just like here's a cat, here's a cat. This I'm is a my cat. name. I'm a cat. I'm a cat. I'm a cat. And then Grizabella comes out and she's like and then they're like, Mama Cat too. Here comes old Deuteronomy. Get on this tire and go up to the heavy side layer. What? And then that's the end. Everyone's like, Yay! Crying. Bravo. Yeah. Oh my God, cats. This is the time you know that in first previews, Andrew Lloyd Webber was sitting in the back of the theater and he's watching this and he goes, I can do anything I want. Oh I God. I own this planet. I if I can do this. I can do anything. I could kill a man in front of everyone. <laughs> but instead he did song allegedly. It, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, like the misinformed legal team just handed us a I know we got, we got it. They're like, please move on. Andrew Lloyd Webber has ears and eyes everywhere. 
We've just been informed that our legal team has um, <laughs> We've just now been, left us and has been hired by Andrew. We've just been served papers. Andy L. Dubs. <laughs> Andy L. Dubs. Hey, Andy. Uh, Song and Dance was the follow-up to Cats. It's a 1982 musical comprising of two acts. Never one t- heard of it. Yeah, well, the reason being is because one told is, enti- is told entirely in song, and then the second act is told entirely in dance. Um, and they're tied together in a unified love story. The song act is Tell Me on a Sunday. Because okay. Tell Me on a Sunday is a one-act, one-woman play. They just added the dance part at the end, and they were like, let's re... New show. Yeah, new show. Um... So the dance act is a ballet choreographed uh, to variations, which is a type, which is a piece of music um, composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber for his cellist brother, Julian, which is based on a minor caprice number 24 by Paganini. Um, the musical had its world premiere on March 26, 1982 at the palace theater where it ran for 781 performances. I know soon after the production closed, the show was filmed for a television broadcast with Sarah Brightman and Wayne sleep in the lead roles. It did not come to Broadway, which is why you've never heard of it. So he didn't do any work for that. No, they had, they had this other show. They were mm-hmm. like, mm, we can let's just stick make it longer, but yeah. I don't want to write any more words. Mm-mm. It's okay. No. We don't need any more words. Done. Dance. We'll just song. throw dance in there. Dance. I'm, I'm imagining that the girl's name is song and the, the guy's name is dance. Oh, I, you know what? <laughs> I mean, you know what? We'll go with that. That's canon now. Sorry, Andy. That's what's up. All right. So then he decided to flex his muscles again. He was like, I took a break. I slept walk through that last one. (laughs) I slept walk through song and dance. Now I'm going to flex my muscles and I'm going to do another stupid thing. (laughs) I'm going to try and see, you know what? I'm going to keep pushing the envelope. Starlight Express. Here we go. Julia mentioned Starlight Express in a previous quiz. Um, and I was like, I have never heard of this. What the hell is Starlight Express? And then you described it to me and I said, nope, that's not real. And then Mm -hmm. we were, um, uh, asked to keep our minds open. Yes, we were asked to keep our minds open. So, but I'm still gonna, all right, well, I'll talk about Starlight (laughs) Express. So Starlight Express, 1984. Um, it is by... Our boy Andy L. Dubs and Richard Stilgo, who was a lyricist for that. Stilgo? Stilgo. That also sounds like it's I know. <laughs> it's Tim Rice. Uh, later productions have used additional songs with lyrics by various people and with music by the composer's son, Alistair Lloyd Webber. So they've of done. Of course, he has a son named Alistair. Yeah, Alistair he's Lloyd. Su- Webber. He's super British. Yeah, they're all. Oh my God, so British. Hello to our friend Alistair. By yeah. The way. Hello, Alistair. I don't think he is Andrew Lloyd Webber's son. I but- hope. Ooh. Oh my God. Well, well, he hasn't told us he's not. No, exactly. Hi, Alistair. You can send some money to Ms. <laughs> at Miss Infopop uh, because your daddy is very rich. Um, so <laughs> so uh, this musical tells the story of a young but obsolete steam engine named Rusty who races in a championship against modern engines in the hope of impressing a first class carriage named Pearl. Famously, the actors perform the entire show on roller skates. <laughs> Uh, the West End production of Starlight Express is the eighth longest running musical in Broadway and West End history, having been performed 7,409 times between 1984 and 2002. Starlight Express is also the most successful musical in Germany, where it has been performed in a purpose-built theater since 1988 and has been seen by over 16 million people to date. They have <laughs> not stopped performing Starlight Express Eight days a week since 1988. It's just 
it's just a continuous performance and like a new actor drops onto the stage like every eight hours. Somebody well, shift. They get to clock off and stop roller skating. Them. Yeah. Well, apparently the purpose-built theater is the audience sits in the middle mm-hmm. and then there are three tracks going upwards. So you actually watch the actors skating around and above you. Think of how many calories you burn. Oh my God, so skinny. And the Germans were like, yeah, yeah, they love it. So Jane Krakowski, a.k.a. Jenna Maroney, was in the original 1987 Broadway cast as Dinah, the sweet and gentle dining car. How about that? How about that? Uh, Starlight Express has its roots in three abandoned projects. One, an animated TV series based on Thomas the Tank Engine. It sounds so... I was totally going to say this sounds like a Thomas the Tank Engine story. Two, a novelty pop single that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote. And three, an animated film based on Cinderella. In this version of the story, the prince would hold a competition to decide which engine would pull the royal train across the United States of America. Cinderella would be a steam engine, and the ugly sisters would be a diesel engine and an electric engine. (laughs) Uh, The project, shockingly, went into development hell, but Andrew Lloyd Webber remained interested in the idea of telling a story with trains. So, Starlight Express it is. The the poster for it is very 80s. It looks like gem. Like, yeah. it's like stars and like smoke, lasers, neon, yeah. lasers. So that's Starlight Express. Perms. Perms. Oh, so many perms. Wristbands. Many wristbands and ankle bands. Since so, your ankles, they get, they get very, very chilly. Or I was going to say sweaty. Oh, and sweaty. Chilly and sweaty, depending on what you're doing. Mm. Anyway, uh, Cricket. So Cricket is a short musical written by A.L. Dubs and Tim Rice. It was commissioned for Queen Elizabeth's 60th birthday celebration and was first performed at Windsor Castle on June 18th, 1986. Hmm. Several of the tunes from the show were later used for uh, a later musical called Aspects of Love, so the work was dropped from public performance or recording. Um, Cricket was the last original musical Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote together. Okay. So they came back together for cricket, and then they never worked together Is it again. about the bug or the sport? It's about the sport. Because <laughs> apparently um, Queen Lizzie loves her cricket. So they performed it for one night only at Windsor Castle for her birthday. And that was it. The end. I don't know if that counts. Well, it's still on a CV. <laughs> so there you go. Um, this is just the amuse-bouche for the main event, which is your favorite and mine, the Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera is inside your mind. <laughs> That's very good. Um, so, 1986. The Phantom of the, the Opera. opera. Beware. <laughs> what I tell you, I wore that cassette out. I wore that cassette out to this day i was doing research you on this. hate you hate musicals I know, but it's because it comes from a deep it comes from a deep love of musicals when i was a child i loved phantom i loved phantom oh i loved it i can sing every word even to this day you know it now everyone now you know my secret <laughs> you know what i'm not i'm not afraid i'm not afraid anymore so phantom 1986 uh, lyrics by Charles Hart. Uh, Richard Stilgo and Lloyd Webber wrote the musical's book together. Apparently there was a book involved. Stilgo the also book provided... Is, book is like the words the and um, music for oh. a musical. Oh, 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 oh. All right, well. Theater. Little theater. Book. Little theater knowledge. Little theater 
info for you. We are misinformation. Uh, still, still go also provided additional lyrics. Um, it is based on the French novel of the same name by Gaston Leroux. Um, its central pot plot revolves around a beautiful soprano, Christine Daae, who becomes the obsession of a mysterious, disfigured musical genius living in the subterranean labyrinth beneath the Paris Opera House. Uh, the musical opened in London's West End at Her Majesty's Theatre in 1986 and on Broadway in 1988. It won the 1986 Olivier Award and the 1988 Tony Award for Best Musical. And Michael Crawford, who was the Phantom, uh, won the Olivier and Tony Awards for Best Actor in a Musical. It is the longest running show in Broadway history by a wide margin okay. and celebrated its 10,000th Broadway performance on February 11th, 2012, the first production ever to do so. It is the second longest running West End musical after Les Mis and the third longest running West End show overall after The Mousetrap, which is a Agatha Christie play. Um, with total estimated worldwide gross receipts of over $5.6 billion and total Broadway gross of $845 million, Phantom was the most financially successful entertainment event until The Lion King surpassed it in 2014. By 2011, it had been seen by over 130 million people in 145 cities across 27 countries and continues to play in London and New York. Um, in 1987, FYI, the heirs of Giacomo Puccini charged in a lawsuit that a reoccurring two-bar passage in Music of the Night closely resembled a similar phrase first heard in the aria Callo de Tacchete from Puccini's opera Girl of the Golden West. The litigation was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. I'm so sorry. That was in the public domain by that point uh, in time. <laughs> possibly. Who knows? <laughs> Um, it continues. In 1990, a Baltimore songwriter named Ray Rapp filed a lawsuit alleging that the title song from Phantom was based on a song that he wrote in 1978 called Till You. After eight years of litigation, including an unsuccessful countersuit by Lloyd Webber claiming that Till You was itself a plagiarism of Close Every Door from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor <laughs> Dreamcoat, the jury found in Lloyd Webber's favor. Uh, former Pink Floyd vocalist and bassist Roger Waters has claimed that the signature descending, ascending halftone chord progression from Phantom's title song, which is yeah, was plagiarized from the bass line of a track on the 1971 Pink Floyd album Metal called Echoes. He avoided taking legal action, saying, quote, life's too long to bother with suing Andrew fucking Lloyd Webber. I also think there are only so many notes. There are so there are only so many notes and so many combinations of notes. Like, come on, guys. Still. There's I only mean, so many beats. Yeah. There's only so many ways you can combine exactly. things before, before it starts sounding like other things. I mean, I agree. So Phantom of the Opera, I can still sing every word. Um, I tried to get my third grade class to perform it. I cast myself <laughs> as Meg Geary. I didn't cast myself in the lead role because you know what? I'm a humble and retiring person. Was your third grade teacher like, you know, this is you know a what? little mature. <laughs> you know what? Two eight year olds. I don't remember, mm -hmm. which means I probably blocked it out. <laughs> but I like to think that she was um, receptive, receptive mm -hmm. and progressive. She probably had no idea what I was talking about. I went to a Christian school. She had oh. no idea what fan oh of the gosh. opera was. Absolutely none. She hadn't heard. She thought you made it up. She thought I made it up. She was like, oh, how fun. Yeah. <laughs> Love Phantom. 
And uh, my parents took my sister and I to see Phantom when we were in elementary school and it was a surprise. And this was at the age where my parents thought my sister and I were identical. Like we had similar, like they thought that we liked the same things and all this stuff. So it was a surprise. They woke us up at like six in the morning. They were like, Hey, guess what? You're not going to school today. And we were like, why? And they were like, because we're taking you up to Toronto. We're going to go see Phantom of the Opera. And my sister stormed out of the room and she went in the bathroom and she's turned around and she goes, nobody asked me if I wanted to go. And she was miserable the entire day. She really dug in deep, like did not enjoy herself, was miserable the entire day. I enjoyed it. I loved it. Sarah's not a fan of musicals. (laughs) So there you go. Okay. Aspects of Love. It is a musical with a book and music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Don Black and Charles Hart. It is famous for the song, Love Changes Everything. Uh, For the finished project, Lloyd Webber used at least five of the tunes he had written for the 1986 one-act musical Cricket, as mentioned before, which he had written with Tim Rice. Uh, It is based on the novella of the same name by David Garnett. The piece focuses on the romantic entanglements of actress Rose Viber, her admiring fan Alex Dillingham, his underage cousin Jenny, his uncle George, and George's mistress, sculptor Giulietta Trapani, over a period of 17 years. Uh, The aspects of the title refers to the many forms that love takes in the show. Love between couples, both as romantic infatuation and as married people, children and their parents, and hints of same-sex attraction between Julieta and Rose. so 80s. Oh, it's so, oh, it's so 80s. Like, I'm just picturing, like, a single rose laid Mm -hmm. on, like, some fur. Ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I'm in it. gray marbled background. And maybe like the lady has very long fingernails. Yes. And there's like a Vaseline haze to the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're absolutely not wrong. With like a script, like a really like really loopy script. Of love. Um, Well, the West End production opened on April 17th, 1989, where it ran for 1,325 performances. The Broadway production with the same creative team and many of the original London cast opened on April 8th, 1990 and closed on March 2nd, 1991 after 377 performances. The reviews were lackluster and New York Times critic Frank Rich wrote in a negative review, quote, whether aspects of love is a musical for people is another matter. (laughs) sure there was context to that but i just love the hell out of that um when the musical closed the entire eight million dollar investment was lost which according to the new york times made it perhaps the greatest flop in broadway history wow that's why you've never heard of it yes wow so his next musical and i promise you i don't have too many to go is sunset boulevard Uh um that is a musical with books and lyrics by Don Black and Christopher Hampton. And it's based on Billy Wilder's Academy Award winning 1950 film of the same title. Um, The plot revolves around Norma Desmond, a fabled star of silent screen era living in the past in her decaying mansion on the fabled Los Angeles street. When young screenwriter Joe Gillis accidentally crosses her path, she sees in him an opportunity to make her return to the big screen. Romance and tragedy follow. Uh, Opening first in London in 1993, the musical had had several long runs internationally and also enjoyed extensive tours. However, it has been the subject of several legal battles and ultimately lost money due to its extraordinary running costs, what's called a flop hit. Uh, Patty Lapone originated the role of Norma Desmond in the West End, with Glenn Close getting the role on Broadway. Uh, Patty Lapone, who initially had been promised the Broadway run, sued Lloyd Webber and received a settlement reported to be a million dollars. How does this guy have billions of dollars when he kept losing money and getting sued? <laughs> I know. 
Uh, so Frank Rich said in his book, in his book, The Hot Seat, noted that these lawsuits contributed to Sunset Boulevard, setting the record for the most money lost by a theatrical endeavor in the history of the United States. So it made a lot of money, but it lost more, wow. which is very hard to do. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So his next musical was called Whistle Down the Wind. Uh, compu- music composed by him. Uh, also wrote, co-wrote its book with Patricia Knopp and Gail Edwards, and its lyrics were written by Jim Steinman. It's based on the 1961 film Whistle Down the Wind, whose source novel of the same name was written by Mary Haley Bell in 1959. Um the musical premiered in 1996 at the National Theater in Washington, D.C., and a concept album was released in 98. It was produced in the West End in 1998 and has been revived several times since then and toured extensively. Uh, the show premiered at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. on December 12, 1996, and it drew mostly negative reviews. And the Broadway opening that had been scheduled for April 17, 97, was subsequently canceled. They were like, So people are really souring on him. Yeah. The 90s and the early 2000s, Actually, I don't think so far he has not really gotten a hit like to the level of Cats or Phantom or Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, But he continued. Um, So the next one was called The Beautiful Game, which is sometimes performed as The Boys in the Photograph. Um, It's a musical about a group of teenagers growing up during the Troubles in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland in 1969. So the plot, which is centered around a local football team, soccer team uh focuses on the attempt to overcome the violence that has engulfed their community the catholic team has one atheist player dell who comes from a protestant family and the coach is a priest uh the musical chronicles some of the key players during the emerging political and religious violence some of the players become ira volunteers and another is kneecapped the musical also chronicles the emotional change in the protagonist from political ambivalence to becoming an ira volunteer Um, The most successful song from the score was Our Kind of Love, which had originally been performed by Kiriti Kanawa as The Heart is Slow to Learn. Um, It was cut from the reworked version of the show in 2008 and used as the title song in Lloyd Webber's sequel to the Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies. Oh, oh, I can't wait to tell you about Love Never Dies. Um, The world premiere of The Beautiful Game opened on September 26, 2000 and closed September 1st, 2001 after a total run of slightly more than 11 months. The show was met with a mixed reception from the critics and it never made it to Broadway. Instead of that, everyone should watch Dairy Girls on Netflix. I, you know what? You are like the third person today <laughs> who told me about Dairy well, Girls. Well, season two just came out in America on oh, Netflix okay. like last weekend. I and see, I watched okay. it all in one day. There are like six episodes in each season and they're all 30 minutes long. I heard they're very, it's a very good it's show. It's very funny. It takes place during the Troubles. Okay. In Dairy. Okay. And um, it's a bunch of girls that go to Catholic school. And I love uh, Sister Michael is mm, one of my favorite television characters. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'm in they, it. Got, they got some filthy mouths on them. They do. And they get into a little trouble. Ooh, I like um, that. Okay. I'm in lo- it. A lot of slang. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'll have to do a lot of Googling while I'm a watching. Mm-hmm. And keep the um, closed captioning on. I usually do that with British shows. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, especially if you're from the North, I cannot. I cannot. It's just too hard. Anyway. All right, good. Lot Dairy of, girls. Lot of calling people a dick. Ooh. It's great. Um, okay, so the next uh, musical is The Woman in White. It's mm. based on the novel The Woman in White, written by Wilkie Collins. And uh, there are also elements. Yeah, my boy, Wilkie Collins. Um, and there are also elements of The Signal Man by Charles Dickens. 
Uh, it ran for 19 months in the West End beginning in 2004 and three months on Broadway, making it one of Lloyd Webber's shortest running shows. Uh, notably, Anne Hathaway was in the cast of the original Sidmonton Festival workshop performance. Um, he Okay, so Andrew Lloyd Webber first began plans for a sequel to his hit musical Phantom of the Opera in 1990. Following a conversation with uh, Maria Bjornsson, the designer of the Phantom of the Opera, Lloyd Webber decided that were a sequel to come about, it would be set in New York City and at the turn of the 20th century. So in 2007, he had been working on it, he'd been working on it. In 2007, Lloyd Webber's cat, Otto, leapt onto his Clavinova piano and destroyed the entire score for the new Phantom in one fell swoop. That sounds like a made up. Doesn't it sound made up? When I first read that, I was like, okay. Like, are you serious? Your cat just like my dog ate my homework. The the cat ruined my musical score. Apparently what a Clavinova piano is, it's a digital piano and you can record on the piano onto Uh, like the hard drive. Okay. So apparently he had must have let it left it on or something and the cat had jumped on it and somehow deleted the entire score. The irony of a cat you right? ruining right what is supposed to become the next his- amazing thing yeah. is incredible. So obviously the phantom in question that was deleted was at the time called the Phantom of Manhattan, <laughs> which was a planned sequel to the Phantom of the Opera. So ultimately the sequel, finally entitled The Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, was loosely adapted from the 1999 novel The Phantom of Manhattan by Frederick Forsyth. So it's set in 1907, which is a decade after the conclusion of Phantom, according to the production's announcement, but actually it's actually 26 years later because the original Phantom was set in 1881. Yeah. Christine is invited to perform at Phantasma, a new attraction at Coney Island by an anonymous impresario. With her husband Raoul and son Gustave in tow, she journeys to Brooklyn, unaware that it is the Phantom who has arranged her appearance at the popular beach resort. The original production opened at the Adelphi Theater in the West End on March 9th, 2010. Though it ran for over 17 months and closed on August 27th, 2011, the production received mixed reviews. <laughs> a scheduled Broadway opening in November 2010 was postponed until spring 2011, and later they just canceled it. So it never came to the U.S. Because apparently it was ooh, terrible. Because it was basically the Phantom on Coney Island. Like they had like freaks and like circus performers. And for some reason, like hot dogs, yeah, hot dogs. And there were some of the, some of the cast, like the original cast characters had gone from like high end Paris opera singers to burlesque dancers on Coney Island. It's very weird. So there was like a seedy underbelly and the music wasn't good and people hated it. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So. Can you think of any like musical sequels? Because I can't. Um, no, I don't think I can either. Well, because, yeah, Hamilton 2, Electric Boogaloo, He Rises from the Dead. I don't know. Like, uh, no, I can't think of any musical yeah. sequels. To all our musical yeah, fans out there, a- hit us up if you can if you can recommend, like, an actual, like, hit, hit musical sequel. Because there was... There was Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Yeah, that was more like a... It wasn't yeah, really that was like, like a one-off story, yeah. though. Yeah. So I don't... And that was a flop. You two did the music and people died. People died. Yeah, it was terrible. One no, person got, died. One person died and That's a lot of people got hurt. too many people to die on the stage. <laughs> exactly. Turn off the dark. Anyway. Turn it off! <laughs> <laughs> what 
Anyway. So the next he did The Wizard of Oz. So... <laughs> It's, unexpected it's basically the same as the movie as the 1939 movie um he did the book with jeremy sams but the the musical uses the original harold arlen and ey harburg songs from the film and but also included some new songs by him um and additional lyrics by tim rice so uh after previews in the west end from february 7th um t- 2011 the musical opened on March 1st and closed on September 2nd, 2012. Uh, notably, the role of Dorothy was cast through the 2010 British reality television show called Over the Rainbow, in which Danielle Hope won the part. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the second, the the runner-up became her understudy. Okay. So that's how that worked out. Um, so his next one was called Stephen Ward, which is a musical with a book and lyrics by Don Black and Christopher Hampton. The musical is based on the 1963 Profumo affair involving the war minister, John Profumo, and the socialite Stephen Ward, who introduced Profumo to his mistress, Christine Keeler, who was also involved with a Russian spy. This is a real historical thing. The musical's world premiere was in London's West End at the Aldwych Theatre in the winter of 2013 and closed at the end of March 2014. It received mixed reviews from critics. But they, okay, so like at this point, is he funding his own stuff? Is he still getting investors to give him money for these things? Because it sounds like he hasn't had a great return on investment in the last mm, 23, 28 years. And he has enough money and he, and... A lot of these are being produced by his own company, the okay. Really Useful Group. So the Really Useful really Group. Really Useful Group. <laughs> Apologies to all our UK <laughs> listeners. I'm so sorry, in all of England and the UK. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of these are kind of his personal passion projects, and it seems like a lot of these aren't to the scale. Besides, maybe Love Never Dies which was very large and mm-hmm. a lot of production and stuff like that. These smaller things uh, were not huge to put on. Yeah. You okay. know, like an orchestra, a nice set, a cast of maybe like, you know, five to nine. It's not huge. So if they're not, they usually get their return on investment, if not make a little bit okay. of a profit. And he doesn't really need to make a profit at this point. Um, he's kind of like, I was going to say Peter Gabriel. Like Peter Gabriel can like do whatever Elton he wants. John. Like Elton John. Elton John doesn't need to put out another album. No. He doesn't. He can put out an album and if it's a flop, he goes meh. And then he goes back to one of his like 16 castles or whatever. Like it's not a big deal. And his wonderful husband and their beautiful children. And their beautiful children. And yeah, his incredible movie that's definitely going to be a musical that will win a Tony. You know, like that's how that works. Uh, go see um, uh, the Elton John musical, guys. Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Thank you. Oh my God. Why didn't I think of it? I almost said Piano Man, <laughs> which is different. That's Billy Joel. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Rocket Man was great. We talked about this. Anyway, the last musical that Andrew Lloyd Webber has done so far is as of today. As of today, is School of Rock, oh. uh, which is based on the 2003 film of the How same about name. That? Um, this uh, musical follows the character of Dewey Finn, an out-of-work rock singer and guitarist who pretends to be a substitute teacher at a prestigious prep school. And after identifying the musical talent in his students, Dewey forms a band of fifth graders in an attempt to win the upcoming Battle of the Bands contest. Uh, The musical was announced in December 2014 and opened just under a year later on December 6th, 2015. 
The Broadway production closed on January 20th, 2019 after 31 previews and 1,309 regular performances. Uh, reviews were overall positive. School of Rock evoked comparisons with other musicals with Michael Dale of Broadway World deeming it, quote, the sound of music without the Nazis. Um, <laughs> Great. Jack Black himself attended a Sunday performance and afterwards told the cast backstage, quote, there were so many times I went, I could not have done it that well. You made me laugh. You made me cry. You made me rock. Aww. Isn't that sweet? Jack Black. So up on a good note for our boy Andy L. Dubs, um, but... Andrew Lloyd Webber politically um, has not been great. Like, I guess he's a member of parliament, but has not voted very often. And it's just kind of like, I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff around Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber. So that was my quick and dirty on Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. Good, bad, and in between. Bravo. Thank you. Um, So my quiz today is uh, called Andrews, Lloyds, and Webbers. A quiz on famous Andrews, famous Lloyds and grilling. Question number one. St. Andrew is the patron saint of a lot of cities, including, but not limited to, Patras in Greece, Amalfi in Italy, and what ancient city, which according to the song, is now Istanbul? Question number two. Why can't you be more like Lloyd Braun? This enigmatic recurring character on Seinfeld was the arch nemesis of George Costanza. Lloyd Braun had his own set of problems, though, but with the nervous breakdown and the failed relationship with Elaine. But what really put him over the edge was his short-lived stint selling what out of the Costanza's garage? Question number three. Barbecue sauce has fierce regional alignments, with many states and cities insisting that theirs are the best. North Carolina has vinegar style, Kansas City has molasses, and South Carolina is known for its barbecue slathered with what common condiment? Question number four, true or false, Dame Julie Andrews has yet to win an EGOT. Question number five, name this Lloyd. He was a film, stage, and television actor who got his big break in westerns, but reinvented himself later in his career to play in comedies like Airplane and Hot Shots, as well as a guest turn on Seinfeld as the infamous Izzy Mandelbaum Sr. He has two sons who are also well-known actors and look a lot like him. Question number six. The Big Green Egg is a kind of very expensive ceramic grill that has a distinctive look and style of cooking, known as Kamado style. From what country does Kamado style cooking originate? Question number seven. Artist Andy Warhol had his hands in a lot of things, not just art, and in the late 60s added band manager to his resume. What was the name of this tactile subterranean experimental rock band that he managed? Question number eight. Harold Lloyd, often considered alongside Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin as one of the most influential comedians of the silent film era, is probably still best known for an iconic daredevil scene in his film Safety Last in 1923, where he dangles high above the city, hanging from what object? Question number nine. Depending on who you ask, either gas or charcoal is the best for grilling meats in your backyard. You can buy a big bag of it at any grocery store, but what exactly is charcoal made from? Is it A, wood, B, clay, or C, stone? And finally, question number 10. Lloyd's of London is one of England's oldest and well-known insuring corporate bodies. It's also famous for insuring strange things. I'm going to name four insured things, and you're going to tell me if Lloyd's has insured them or not. One. 
Tina Turner's legs. Two, Bruce Springsteen's vocal cords. Three, Troy Polamalu's hair. And four, Brooke Shields's eyebrows. We'll give you a minute to think about and sing along to some Jesus Christ Superstar, and we'll be right back with your answers. time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Now why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you could have reached the whole nation. Israel in for BC had no mass communication. Don't you get me wrong. Don't you get me wrong. Don't you get me wrong. Great. Great. Great quiz. Great, great. Great thank quiz. You. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Here we go. Okay. Question number one. St. Andrew is the patron saint of a lot of cities, including but not limited to Patras in Greece, Amalfi in Italy, and what ancient city, which according to the song, is now Istanbul? Istanbul was Constantinople. Istanbul was Constantinople. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Constantinople. Okay, great. Uh, yes, you are correct. Uh, he is also the patron saint of Scotland, and his saltier, which is the X-shaped cross, is on the flag. There you go. Yep. Question number two. Why can't you be more like Lloyd Braun? This enigmatic recurring character on Seinfeld was the arch nemesis of George Costanza. Lloyd Braun has his own set of problems, though, what with the nervous breakdown and the failed relationship with Elaine, but what really put him over the edge was his short-lived stint selling what out of the Costanza's garage? Computer. He sold computers. Um, I didn't remember this, but apparently he, the implication was that he murdered a family and put, kept them in his freezer. I did not remember this. Um, but after he was fired from Costanza and Son, he w- fled and was never heard from again. Well, he got fired from the Dinkins campaign because he wanted everyone to wear name tags. Yeah, and everyone laughed at him, and that's how Rudy Giuliani got to be mayor. That's how that works. Question number three. Barbecue sauces have fierce regional alignments, with many states and cities insisting that theirs are the best. North Carolina has vinegar style, Kansas City has molasses, and South Carolina is known for its barbecue slathered with what common condiment? Is it mustard? It is mustard. Um, according to the South Carolina Barbecue Association, German Scab. Scab. No. The old... Uh. Scab. Oh, uh, Scab. <laughs> <That's> fun. <laughs> well, it, sh- it would be so much easier if it was the South Carolina Association of Barbecue, right? Get at me, scab. Um, The Germans arrived to South Carolina settlements with mustard in tow. The mustard-based Carolina gold, as it's known, is used to dress pulled pork and other pork cuts. Delicious. Question number four. True or false, Dame Julie Andrews has yet to win an EGOT. The answer is true. She does not have an EGOT. She does not have an EGOT. I think we talked about this. It's come up at trivia before. Yeah, it's like, come up We had to name before. like which one they didn't have. Mm-hmm. And the, the answer is she does not have a Tony. So she has an Oscar, five Golden Globes, three gl- Grammys, two Emmys, but no Tony, mm-hmm. which is 
crazy, which is sacrilege. Um, she'll be okay though, because she also has a BAFTA, a SAG Lifetime Achievement Award, the Kennedy Center Honors Award, and the Disney Legends Award, whatever that is. Since she does not have a Tony, but she has Emmys, Golden Globes, Grammys, and Oscars, our engineer would like to point out that she has an ego. <laughs> she does have an ego. So, you know what? Which I would argue is tastier. Tastier. Than EGOT. And rarer, I would say. Yeah. Ego. Okay, question number five. Name this Lloyd. He was a film, stage, and television actor who got his big break in Westerns, but reinvented himself later in his career to play in comedies like Airplane and Hot Shots, as well as a guest turn on Seinfeld as the infamous Izzy Mandelbaum Sr. He has also had two sons who are also well-known actors and look a lot like him. That's Lloyd Bridges. Lloyd Bridges. Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum. He appeared in over 150 feature films and died of natural causes in 88. Seemed like a lovely man. Married to the same woman for like 65 years or something insane like that. Okay, question number six. The big green egg is a kind of very expensive ceramic grill that has a distinctive look and style of cooking known as Kamado style. From what country does Kamado style cooking originate? Will you spell that word for me? K-A-M-A-D-O. I was, mm, okay, Eh, I'll say Japanese. It is Japan. Okay. Uh, A Kamado is a traditional wood or charcoal fueled cook stove that is a round clay pot with a removable domed lid hence the egg look apparently they're great big big green eggs maggie and justin have one it's wonderful yeah they love it uh question number seven artist andy warhol has had his hands in a lot of things not just art in the late 60s added band manager to his resume what was the name of the tactile subterranean experimental rock band that he managed Velvet Underground. It is the Velvet Underground. Uh, the band was initially active between 65 and 73 and served as the house band at the factory and Warhol's exploding plastic inevitable events from 1967 to 19, uh, 1966 to 1967. Their debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, with German-born singer and model Nico, was released in 67. My photography teacher, Costa, uh, used to play that album all the time when we were in the dark room, hmm. which lent a very weird psychedelic 60s quality to all of our artwork at the time. Um, question number eight. Harold Lloyd, often considered alongside Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin as one of the most influential comedians of the silent film era, is probably still best known for an iconic daredevil scene in his film Safety Last from 1923, where he dangles high above the city hanging from what object? Is he on a clothesline? No, he is on a clock. He hangs from a clock oh, face. Like the okay. clock hangs. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's a very iconic, I mean, very few people have seen the movie, I, mean, mm-hmm. I imagine, but it's a very iconic image. Yeah, I didn't know the name <clears throat> associated with that. So um, just... Yeah, so that's Harold Lloyd. And the film Safety Last! Exclamation point. Um, so this effect was achieved through a certain amount of camera trickery, but Harold was an unlucky guy with stunt stuff. Anyway, apparently in August 1919, while posing for some promotional still f- photographs in Los Angeles, he was seriously injured holding a prop bomb thought to be merely a smoke pot. It exploded and mangled his right hand, causing him to lose a thumb and his forefinger. The blast was severe enough that the cameraman and the prop director nearby were also seriously injured. Here's the worst part. He was in the act of lighting a cigarette from the fuse of the bomb when it exploded, also badly burning his face and chest and injuring his eye. But despite the proximity of the blast to his face, he retained his sight. A prop bomb. A prop bomb. Maybe it doesn't have to 
go off. I know. The early 20th century was such a paper machine. Oh my God. Yeah. Why does it have to just light the end, guys? But in the rest of like when he became super famous in like the early 20s and throughout his career, he had to wear a glove with like a fake thumb and (gasps) forefinger, which is like, I mean, you couldn't tell. Wow. Yeah. He didn't have like, like like JPP, the football player. Yes. That blew off his hand from a. Guys, stop handling explosives. Please don't do that. Whew, you heard it here first. Question number nine. Depending on who you ask, either gas or charcoal is the best for grilling meats in your backyard. You can buy a big bag of it at any grocery store, but what exactly is charcoal made from? Is it A, wood, B, clay, or C, stone? I think it's wood. It is wood. Uh, charcoal is usually produced by slow pyrolysis, which is the heating of wood in the absence of oxygen. The process is called charcoal burning and the finished charcoal consists largely of carbon. It's mostly carbon by the time you get to the charcoal part of it. I feel like at, at Steve's camp, he takes something that was burning and puts it in a glass bottle and leaves it in the fire. And then you get charcoal out of that. That seems right. Where he seals it up and like the oxygen gets yeah, sucked out of it somehow. Something. I feel like I vaguely recall this. Mm-hmm. Steve, um, let me know. Steve, get at us. Steve, get at us. And finally, question number 10. Lloyd's of London is one of England's, old, England's oldest and well-known insurance corporate bodies. It was established in 1686. It is 330 years old. 333 years old. Um, it's also famous for insuring strange things. I'm going to name four insured things, and you're going to tell me if Lloyd's has insured them or I made it up. Okay, you ready? Okay. One, Tina Turner's legs. Yes. Yes. Two, Bruce Springsteen's vocal cords. Yes. Yes. Three, Troy Palamalu's hair. Yes. Yes. And finally, Brooke Shields' eyebrows. Yes. No. Ah. Sorry. But they did insure her legs, so her legs are good. Um, they also uh, insured Michael Flatley's legs. Oh, well, sure. But it was only, they were only insured when he was on stage. And he was <laughs> forbidden from dancing off stage because of the wow. insurance policy. I choose not to dance. <laughs> I choose not to dance. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's your quiz well, on was, Lloyd's and that Andrews. That was and, all kinds of wonderful Oh, thank, thank you. Lauren. I appreciate it. It was fun. It was fun to do. Uh, the entire week, I've been like singing a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber songs and like listening to them. And honestly, wow, he really just retreads the same stuff, doesn't he? You can really clock an Andrew Lloyd Webber song out of nowhere. I mean, they're in- enormously catchy. Don't get me wrong, but he, he his billions mu- of dollars yeah, his- really don't care what you think. <laughs> no, they don't care what I yeah. think. So what am I? Yeah. So whatever. Anyway, <laughs> we have one a fun listener submitted trivia. Yes. So um, in the wine episode with Garrett last week, um, we we just like briefly touched upon how like all these other different countries have like AOCs and DOCs and like Mm -hmm. there's specific qualities that, you know, products have to have a certain percentage of this to be called this. And we said something like, oh, yeah, in America, like bourbon's the only thing, right? Or something. So. Our listener, Nicole N., said, uh, fun fact, bourbon isn't legally limited to Kentucky. American whiskey made with mash of at least 51% corn, distilled at no more than 160 proof, aged at no more than 125 proof, and bottled at no less than 80 proof, and aged in new charred oak barrels can be called bourbon. You got all that? That's all of the rules. (laughs) I wrote it down. I made sure to write it down. It is legally required to be made in America, but not a specific state. That's interesting. So thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. Nicole's a great listener. We get a lot of uh, 
um, they tweeted us all the time. Yeah. So I'm, it's, it's nice to hear from Nicole. So thank you, Nicole. Um, so yeah, if you want to send us some listener submitted trivia, we are always happy to, to shout it out on the podcast. Um, you can email us at uh, misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod. Uh, you can write on our Facebook page like Nicole did, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. Look for our pink logo. Uh, and you can head to our website, www.misinfopod.com. You can uh, listen to us on our website, and then you can basically find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes, we're very accessible. Please. Great review and subscribe. Please tell a friend. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. I mean, we tell our friends to the to and I strangers. Think our relationships with these friends detriment. I feel, but oh, you know what? That's not true. No, you know what? I will remain bold as brass until someone tells me otherwise. So <laughs> you know, I am always going to. Uh, yeah, your hair is. Uh, what's happening? All over to the me? place. Uh, I keep because the the fan is like blowing, and I kept like pulling it out of my eyes, and now I look like. I look like I look like the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and on that right. note. On that note. Sorry. All right. Now, is that better? Okay, good. All right. Uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.